You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. So today we wanted to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer before this episode. Nothing crazy happens. We just had some audio issues because everybody in my neighborhood was also on the Wi-Fi during this interview over Zoom. Yes. And so there was just a couple little audio issues we had, but we felt like the interview was too great to re-record and that it wasn't a real deal breaker for us. And it is, it's such a fascinating interview and we found ourselves getting kind of lost listening. Yes, that's why you hear me. Hardly saying anything except, oh, oh, well, he had so much. He was like, seriously, a book full of knowledge. Seriously. And he's like the human equivalent of Google for Fender guitars. We can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. Today we have an incredible guest with us who is a historian, an expert in his field, an avid collector of all things Fender, as well as mid-century, one of the authors of the book, Fender, The Golden Age, 1946 to 1970. We want to welcome to the show, Terry Foster. We're so excited to have you today. That's an understatement. We've been, we were jamming out to a little Sir Mix-a-Lot to get hyped yeah. up before we started the interview today. That seems perfect. It was. Perfect way to lead in. Yeah. I mean, we could have probably come in a little, a little less hot, but... <laughs> I just went straight for it. And um, I will be honest with you, Terry. I did not know anything about Fender guitars before I reached out to you. Other than I know a lot of musicians play them. And then that scene in Wayne's World when Wayne and Cassandra walk into the music store to look at the Fender Stratocaster. 64 Fender Stratocaster in classic white with triple single coil pickups and a whammy bar. And That's then, right, under glass. Under, under glass. Yeah. <laughs> and no stairway to heaven, and the guy points at the sign. What, just quickly, what makes that guitar so cool? The one from Wayne's World? Yeah. Well, is it that cool, or did they just write it in as cool? Uh, it's cool, but it made you care about what it was. It definitely isn't a 64 Stratocaster, but it fits right in the golden age of uh of fender history you know so anything made before 1965 um when the company was was sold to cbs you know the cbs we know today same cbs um when it was owned by leo fender himself that's considered to be the absolute golden age of uh, fender instruments and that would start in and around 1950 as they started making the electric spanish guitars the six-string guitars you know, that everybody knows uh, up until that point when, when Leo Fender sold the company. And so there's that sweet spot when it is, it's not a small company by the end, but it's a relatively small company uh, pumping out a lot of guitars, but, you know, very high quality. You know, the standards of production were extremely high. Um, and it, it, something happened in February 1964 that led to the, the, the near-term downfall for the quality of musical instruments, and that was the Beatles on, on Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. After the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, that's the big bang for a lot of people. You'll hear you know, people who were old enough to be watching TV on that day 
who are rock and rollers now talk about mm -hmm. that as being the, the moment when they decided I needed a guitar. And so every guitar manufacturer had to increase production, you know, X times for the next few years as there was that rock and roll explosion across the world, right? Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not just in yeah. the US, North America and, and the UK. Yeah, it, it changed the direction of popular music and rock and roll and blues and jazz and everything as we know Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And and there's a there's an equilibrium in terms of the amount you can crank out and the quality you can maintain. And it's a hard thing to do. That's why now, if you're familiar with the musical instruments, just boutique makers, such as Eric Daw, who you know cranks out a couple of guitars a month, extremely high quality. Um, and if he were to increase his production X fold, he wouldn't be able to maintain that same level of quality with just himself. So right. yeah. that's what started uh, the end of that golden age of uh, electric guitar making. Because it wasn't just Fender. It, it ended up being Gibson and Gretsch and some of the mm -hmm. other manufacturers. And the ones beyond that, too. Because every kid, as I said, wanted to play guitar. Yeah. And you, when you started collecting, because you're, are you from Canada? I am, yes. Okay. So you started collecting in your teenage years. I did. And all of that it comes from, you know, almost, the, it's not the same Big Bang, but, you know, when music television started, we had uh, a version of MTV in Canada called Much Music. And so videos were on TV in rotation, you know, 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And it became uh, almost more accessible in a way. When you listen to, as a kid, to music in the car, um, especially when you're little, you don't, you're not making that connection between the musicians, the instruments, and everything else. Obviously, some videos didn't show performances, but the ones that did are the ones that, you know, were intriguing. You know, when you're seeing uh, them actually playing their guitars. Um, and my parents had lots of music from the 60s. So when I was digging around their record collections, I was seeing those old guitars mm -hmm. on the album covers. And being able to then make that connection between you know, what I saw on, on TV, on music television, uh, with the records, and then the actual tools um, that were used to make them. And that was, that was an epiphany. All of a sudden, one day, I realized these things were real. Um, you and know, tangible. I was quite young. Yeah, and it gave yeah, every, tangible. everybody the opportunity to be a rock star, whether it was just for your parents, just for a reunion, or wherever you were. Absolutely. For those moments, you were like you were a badass because you could play maybe four chords, but you were doing it on an electric guitar. Yeah, that was far more badass than you know how most kids <laughs> usually start with crappy acoustic guitars, being forced to play you know some shitty version of "Old Lang Syne" when the Saints <laughs> go marching in, right? Which I had to do in order to graduate to you know playing the electric guitar, and th and that came the day that my older cousin. Um, was able to actually play something on the radio. And, and that was the next connection. It was like, okay, if she can do this, and it wasn't a gender rivalry. It's just she simply yeah, was yeah. my, my <laughs> cousin was, was a girl. But if she can do it, well, then damn it, I can do it. And and that was the, the, the big leap forward. Um, and once you immerse yourself in playing an instrument, uh, if you're curious at all, the instrument itself uh, then speaks to you in lots of different ways. Right. Um, depending on your level of curiosity. For some people, just as a tool, they don't think much of it. Sure. A guitar bangs around the house and they plug away on a few chords. For me, I wanted to take it apart. I wanted to figure mm -hmm. out, you know, how it worked. 
Um, there are, this was pre-internet, so I couldn't just go and, and ask Google the questions. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and I, it had never even occurred to me to go to the library, maybe find some books on guitars. It essentially was when friends would come play at my house poorly, I'd say, well, why don't you leave your guitar? Yeah, no. And then that's when I, I figured out that um, the six strings have a lot of tension on them. And if you start uh, taking the neck off a Stratocaster, it bends over quite quickly. Oh, no doubt. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that's what I had. My first guitar was an acoustic guitar that was given to me by my grandfather. And he brought it home, I think, from when he was in the service in England. And it's just a, a German-made acoustic guitar. <laughs> Melissa, Eric's wife, looked at it when she was here. And she goes, oh, it needs a neck adjustment. And I was like, great. Good to know. I'm glad that it is. But I, uh, I remember spending hours fiddling with it. I am not great hand-wise with musical instruments, but I, my background is in singing and choir and those types of things. And so to translate to this motion versus just singing was difficult for me. Did you pick that up easily as a kid or did you just practice that until you were great? As a kid, it was easier, you know, obviously learning things as an adult because our brains have only so much capacity and we only have so much time. <laughs> but when I was when I was 12, 13, um, I didn't have the same distractions that a 12 or 13-year-old had today. So I would plug away at it for hours. And the good, th- the, the good thing about a guitar is you can make steady progress because you only need to be able to play three chords and then next thing you know, you can sort of play a song. And, and that allows you to start to climb that mountain. Um, and it's, it is, and for, for kids especially, uh, and in the schools in Canada, anyway, kids are playing ukes. And even that is even more accessible because the neck's so small. And so kids can mm-hmm. progress very quickly uh, musically. And you can and, pack it anywhere, really. It's not as cumbersome yeah, yeah. as a full-size either electric or acoustic guitar. Right. So we could um, throw it in your backpack and beat the shit out of it. It'll still sound okay. That's right. <laughs> but, but my goal was always to be like one of those guys I saw on TV, right? So mm-hmm. I was, and my mother insisted I go to the Ontario Conservatory of Music, and I had to play those crappy songs I mentioned before <laughs> in order to be able to get an electric guitar and start to go in the direction I wanted to go. Mm. Um, and, and my first decent electric guitar so I had a crappy one before that was a Fender Stratocaster. And your first antique you collected wasn't a guitar, right? It was an amp, the Fender Champion. Is that an amp? That is an amp. Okay. Well, and partly that was a friend of mine who um, his family, he was like the youngest of, uh, uh, of a bigger family. And so he had cousins who were, you know, a generation plus older than he was, as old as my father. And so you know, he started playing guitar and one of them said, Oh, I got a guitar and an amplifier. And they produced an old harmony rocket, which is a, a, a red hollow body, you know, cheaply made guitar and a little fender champ. And that little fender champ, you know, got my heart racing. I didn't really know what it was, but I knew it was old and I knew it was fender and I knew it was cool. And I borrowed that and I kept that for a long time. Uh, because he wasn't that into that particular amplifier, wasn't into the vintage thing, as it were. And I didn't quite even really understand what that vintage even meant in that regard. Or, or that that amplifier was even a big deal. Yeah, I knew it was old, and I knew it was cool, and I knew it sounded great, even though I wasn't you know, a great player at the age of 14, which is about the age I was when, uh, when I borrowed that thing. So what drew you, like two fenders in general like did you see was it always fenders like did you see something in a shop and you were like 
holy shit, I have to have that fender? Or did you like start like, because now you have such an extensive fender collection. I want to know the love story at the beginning. It, it, it comes from my parents' record collection, you know, so I can remember um, I would sit in the basement with a record player, just listening to all the records. And, you know, in those days when you listen to a record, you're looking at, you know, the sleeve. And one of them was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And on the cover is a Stratocaster. And then there's a, a, a Gibson. And the Stratocaster, to me, even at the time, looked, it looks completely different than, than other guitars at the time. It still does. It still looks futuristic. Yeah, it's like a ray uh, and, gun. And it just looks it is. so Absolutely. intense when you look at it. And with the fact that when that came out, everything that was before it was pretty vanilla. And then when people saw that guitar, they were like, it was, I think it was just promising for the future. Yeah, and and it, it didn't catch on in the same way to begin with. But, you know, the albums my parents happened to have, that seemed to be a common theme. So I knew it was something. Um, and then my mother got me a subscription to Guitar Player Magazine. And they opined about vintage guitars. And they would go to the vintage guitar shows. And so then I knew immediately these the older ones were better. The older ones, you know, had a value beyond... Because I could buy a Stratocaster any day of the week, mm-hmm. um, and then and then it was a dogged pursuit to actually get my hands on an old one. Because I had a reissue, I had a Stratocaster, but it was different. There was I could even tell there was something different. So I would look in the classified ads uh, your, every single day. Was your uh, your first Stratocaster? Was it a CBS era Stratocaster? Uh, post CBS, okay. you know, the company had already been sold, but it was, it was built to look like a 1962 Stratocaster. Um, and to the untrained eye, it would be. And so that's what we, you know, and I knew from that magazine, cause they talked about those things too, that, that, that wasn't the same thing. So I would look in the classified ads in my hometown every single day. And when something came for sale, I'd get on the phone to them. I was 14. I started talking <laughs> to some old dude about, about his guitar, um, and they frequently, you know, weren't happy. Cause it's like, are you buying it or not? Man? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they want to like, be no. like, am I going to uh, get some cash on this like or not? Sounds like me as a teenager too. I <laughs> yeah. have, you strike me as somebody, it's similar to my curiosity. Like if I see something interesting, I have to go all the way down to the end of the rabbit hole and overturn Absolutely. every stone so that I have a good enough grasp with it. And I was similar to that as a kid. I would just walk up and start asking people about whatever. And they'd be like, well, who's this little fucking girl that's just asking us a bunch of random shit? Because I thought I was more important at that <laughs> age than I really was. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about just briefly with the Fender thing, because I want to get into some of your other things. We mentioned that when Fender was started, it was not the guitars that you think of now. No. They started they were, with Hawaiian steel guitars. That's right. Um, what m- most people wouldn't realize is that Hawaiian music was, you know, more popular uh, in the U.S. than pop music uh, is today. And for twenty plus years, um, there was a real uh, romantic notion about the Hawaiian Islands, um, and there were Hawaiian steel guitar bands everything from kids to housewives and like big groups playing steel guitars. And what that means by steel guitars is it has steel strings um, and it's played on the lap with an open, open tuning with a steel bar or a glass bar or a Bakelite plastic bar. Um, And it was really easy uh, 
even easier than you know playing electric Spanish with your fingers mm-hmm. uh, to 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 be okay at it right away. You know, because you're just moving around and playing chords, and so um, you know, Leo Fender's initial uh, business was a uh, radio repair business, um, and part of of uh, his fascination with radios that goes back to when he was a teenager in the 1920s. You could imagine how exotic the radio would have been to be able to hear voices in your house from from afar. Yeah, and want to take um, that apart and see what the hell's going on inside of that box. Absolutely. Even his in his earliest uh, ads um, for his radio service, it started in uh, it started in earnest a couple of times, and it stopped and it started. But in 1940, when it really got going, uh, he'd essentially put the established date back to when he was in high school, oh. uh, giving himself a little bit more credibility. <laughs> but there was, but it, he, I, I looked, you know, was there a business that he bought? Mm-hmm. There wasn't. There was no radio service in Fullerton in, 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 in until the late 20s. Um, but he has that and all, all those things. And for him, it was a natural progression. Uh, you know, if you're, if you can build a radio, you can build an amplifier. And of course, I mean, why not? The same thing, the same thing. Right. Um, and during the war, there were, uh, you know, we talk about what are essential services right now. During the war, there were essential services in the U S and one of them was radio repairing, so the parts were available to him. The reason radio repairing was an essential service because that's the way the government would get information out to the citizenry about what was going on. Yeah, everybody so, and everybody had a radio like a television now. That's right. So they had yeah, to know what the, was going on. Yeah, for sure. By the forties, almost every household in the U.S. had a radio, um, and those things broke down. People didn't buy new ones. You know, people took it to be repaired, and they he did thousands and thousands of repairs. At the same time, the catalyst in in his hometown, there was a local musician. Uh, named Doc Kaufman, and Doc had uh, been a professional musician. He'd also invented uh, a couple of had a couple of guitar patents um, that he'd uh, already done by that point in time. And he liked to hang around Leo's shop, and they they got to talking one day, I'm sure. Uh, and the biggest challenge for a guitar player was being heard, because back then it was big bands, big bands as as you think about it now, because mm-hmm. that's what would would project and fill an auditorium. Um, and at, at that time, too, it, well, there was a genre of music um, in the Southwest um, called uh, cowboy swing. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. So like the swing music that we know, and mm-hmm. the, the swing music revival of the 90s didn't speak to this at all. But these essentially were, were hillbilly cowboy players playing a version of swing music. And these guys were the rock stars of their day. Um, and, uh, there, they would fill 5,000 seat, uh, uh, dance halls like every night. And what I These found were- interesting about Leo Fender reading about him was those were the people that had his heart, not Absolutely. the popular musicians that were using that we think about like Billy Holiday or, um, oh my gosh, I just had a brain fart, but you know what I mean? He, he didn't care about the rock stars using his stuff. He cared about the people that were playing in their communities. Well, and also, you know, music was regional then. So you weren't very many people where he was from listening to sophisticated jazz music from the Northeast, right? This was the rock and roll, the pop music of uh, the region he was from. And these people frequently went through, through Fullerton and the musician's challenge at the time was that the guitar couldn't be heard. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, the way in which the traditional music companies dealt with it was 
bigger, bigger bodies to try to project the sound. And then very rudimentary electric guitars, which just electrified those. Um, and the easiest thing for Leo and Doc to, to gin up together was a steel guitar. Uh, Doc scoured parts from the dump. Wow. Uh, he took starter magnets from old Ford Model Ts, strung them yeah. together to make pickups. The first couple of guitars are extremely crude. Like, crude, like they, they look like, you know, it's a shop project that mm -hmm. a kid did, uh, you know, in the eighth grade. Um, but they quickly progressed from that because Leo designed some amplifiers. And in November 1945, they essentially said, fuck it, let's do this. Um, and they went all in. And Leo's, part of Leo's, uh, the way his brain worked was when he went all in, He's, he, he very much went, went all in. So they bought the machinery, they tooled up, but it wasn't the two of them building guitars and amplifiers. Leo already had a staff at his shop, so they were very quickly able to, to get the staff um, working on, on those projects along with you know, keeping the shop running. Um, and it didn't last long. It was called KNF. That was the first. It was Kaufman and Fender, and the KNF guitars are extremely rare. Um, and they're steel guitars and they came in a set with a guitar and an amplifier. Um, and, but they were done by February of 1946. Uh, 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 wow. Oh. They sort of started near the end of the war when, um, uh, some of the restrictions on materials were, were lifted so they could get the materials to manufacture. Um, and then Doc got cold feet and decided, you know, he was a little older than, than Leo and certainly not as entrepreneurial that you know he wasn't willing to risk the little that he already had um, in order to go all all in and 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 make this thing even bigger. So one day the two partners parted ways, uh, and part of the settlement between the partners was, you know, Doc went away with some of the machinery, and literally one day the guitar says K and F, the next day it says Fender, oh and I happen God. to have the last K and F and the last Fender oh in my God. collection. Hell. Just just by serendipity. Um, cause I found one and then found the other and they were serial numbered sequentially at the time. And you could see they ran out of the KNF plates uh -huh. and they <laughs> just, they, the and they stamped a few, yeah, they stamped a few <laughs> fender in a, in, a, in a weird spot. And so there's only a handful like that. Um, and which makes them even more rare because you have those discrepancies and that's yeah, what makes extremely them rare. The, very the, the, cool. the ones that, that were, yeah, the ones that seem to be made on that first day of manufacture, there's less than 20 of them. And, and I have three or four of them in my collection. That's so cool. And the early K&F guitars, were those the ones that, is, was Kaufman the one that took them home to bake the paint in his oven? That's what they say, you know, that uh, they were baked in the oven. Um, a lot of times when you read these things, some of it is, I think, these guys having fun with the guys <laughs> who are interviewing them in the 70s. Some of it they didn't remember, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Martin Kelly and I, who, you know, we wrote that book together, mm -hmm. we often talk about... Uh, Martin ran a popular record label in, in the UK. People would come up to him all the time and say, do you remember, it's called Heavenly Records. Do you remember Heavenly number 675? And it'd be a release number they'd put on their records. And Martin's like, no, that was a Thursday five <laughs> years ago. I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck right? was going on that day. Why would I <laughs> yeah. remember that? But to that person, like that was the biggest thing in the world, yeah. right? And they wanted to talk to him about it. And sure. so a lot of times, you know, we don't know for sure. But they could have been, and, and likely whether they would have bought an industrial oven because they made about three hundred of those. That would be pretty hard, you know. And remember the time period, November yeah. to February, right? Mrs. Kaufman's oven would be going twenty four seven. Be like, I need to make made, fucking dinner. 
Yeah, she yeah, would have exactly. been pissed off. And, and they only made those probably in the first month or so. So she, you know, I, I'm sure they had an industrial oven or they they had it, you know, sent somewhere to do. But it, it is a finish that needs to be baked. And so yeah. I doubt they were made along with the muffins. <laughs> <laughs> and she was probably like, I swear to God. It is almost Christmas time. I don't have time to bake your goddamn guitars right now. The family will be here in 45 minutes. (laughs) Get it out of here. And perhaps that's why they switch finishes. I think you've come up with something there that they had to switch finishes (laughs) because the oven was working too hard. I'll expect my credit in your next book for that (laughs) tidbit right there. And I feel like, you know, like I said, I want to get to the bottom of everything. Do you feel like you've reached the bottom of Fender knowledge or are there still things that surprise you? Uh, The more you dig. You have to look at it with a. I, I'm deeper into this than if I were just were collecting something casually. Now, no doubt, right? <laughs> and so, you know, the more I I dig, I have to sometimes reflect. So Martin and I talk about this all the time. We talked about this for ten years before we actually sat down and wrote the book. And what we try to look at it is with practical eyes, not romantic eyes. Yeah. Right. Meaning that, you know, why would they do something? And just like with any business, you you plan and you do things very purposefully. It's not this romantic notion of things are just, they just happen. Well, right? and Leo Fender was a true entrepreneur. Like if something wasn't working, he went to his team and said, how do we make this better? And then they would just design something that didn't exist to fit the market that they needed. And that's what I find just very striking about well, and, and part of that is the alchemy of the partnership with Don Randall. So that's that's another gentleman in the story who Martin and I tried to bring Don more to the fore because in the past people said, oh, he, he worked for Leo or he just was a sales guy. He was the one sort of driving the, the ideas and driving the business forward in, in that regard. Leo's genius was being able to manufacture them at scale and then manufacture them uh, profitably. Mm-hmm. That, there, there's multifacets to Leo's genius that p- very, people, very few people actually realize. It wasn't an artisan shop of people neatly carving things. Leo also designed the machinery to be able to build the stuff so it, it could be uh, replicated very quickly by unskilled labor. So. Um, in, in Fullerton, there was not a skilled labor force. Mm-hmm. There was a, mm-hmm. a pretty good transient labor force that included, um, you know, Mexican workers like coming up from Mexico, uh, included uh, Okies, as they call them, coming from Oklahoma, you know, uh, past the Dust Bowl era. There was lots of people converging into California in those days. And they didn't necessarily have the skill sets to be able to do that. Conversely, if you go to Kalamazoo, where Gibson was, Cal- the in and around that part of Michigan, is where a lot of furniture manufacturing had happened for years and years and years. And so it was easy for them to, yeah. however, they recruited staff in the 30s and 40s to find a skilled uh, um, woodworker to be able to come and take those skills and, and work at, uh, at Gibson. For Fender, they had to take people off the street and get them very productive very quickly. And so that that part of Leo's genius is is one that um, and there's a lot of nonsense uh, that people talk about online. These romantic notions of mm-hmm. you know master carvers and all these other things. And I think that um, that in, in and of itself is something that if we do another version of the book, we'll talk a little bit more uh, about that because I think you know that part of Leo's genius is is as important as those guitars that everybody absolutely. Well, because without. Yeah, without Don Randall, Fender would not have had, I don't think, as great a success because he was truly a marketing genius. 
absolutely. He made it. He made it rock and roll, and you can see it in the affirmia that you collect too. Just that he was like, "This is this is cool. You you want to own these things," and then realizing that there was novice musicians that needed stuff too. Yeah, and and part of it too was capturing the zeitgeist of youth culture in the fifties, right? Um, and uh, you got to take these things also in context. If you talk about just even the advertising, if you take even the earliest Fender ads, um, they look very different than their competitor ads. Um, you would see women, you would see uh, uh, people uh, of color, you'd see black faces, you'd see brown faces, you see Hawaiians. Um, and that wasn't in anyone else's ads at the time. Um, and that in and, in and of itself was extremely progressive. Um, all right. They, they were those guys. Um, and, uh, so you're going to have to have, um, the black musicians coming out of New York and Chicago, you know, be, be in the ads. Mm-hmm. Um, there was cool things happening in the world of jazz. They captured, uh, onto in, in the mid fifties, um, you know, obviously some of these things aren't without their faults as well, but in the very early days, far more female players than people realize. Um, Don Randall uh, used to sponsor and then owned a music contest in Santa Monica. Um, and part of my collection is I have a whole bunch of pictures uh, that the official photographer took. And it's, it's 50-50, 50-50 boys and girls girls playing Blackguard Telecasters. And it all was stuff brought there for them to play. Um, but they they didn't see it as, as something gendered or, or, or mm-hmm. black and white. I think they truly just saw it as, you know, who's going to buy these things, right? Yeah. And we don't, we don't care. We don't give a shit who buys these things as long as they buy them. And as long as they think they're cool and they're making great music, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it, yeah, they, they wanted real musicians to use their instruments and not just who they thought should be using them and I always I think that that is truly great because when you did send me some of those pictures the woman that's playing the um, glitter guitar that has the because they only didn't make a lot of those models and I just that I found that image so striking because you don't see a lot of women in that stance you saw women in that time as pinups and in playboy or on good housekeeping Mm -hmm. you didn't see them as musicians and, and, and I think there was a lot more than people realized. They weren't just the singers and the bands. In another part of my collection is I try to collect contemporary photos of musicians playing the guitars like new. And there's a lot more females in that collection. And it's random. It's not like when I search for, you know, it's whatever turns up is, is what I find. And there's a lot of, of women who aren't just the singer in, in those photos. And so part of that is... You know, it's a media creation that it was just men, right? The reality was something Mm -hmm. very different. Yeah. And once, I mean, we start to peel back the layers on that onion, we're now all very aware of the stigma and mentality during that time. And I'm glad we've moved past it. And I'm glad that there are images in history and like the ones you collect so we can see an actual depiction of what that time was like versus what was spoon fed to the world absolutely uh, yeah exactly and it was far more interesting and far more colorful and and far more diverse than than we realize mm-hmm. and 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 that's something that you know it, that deserves uh, an article in and of itself and perhaps that's something i'll do once i have the material so with with everything that you collect i want to get into some other stuff in your collection yeah because once i started to look into what you sent me i of course had seen some of it before and some of it i had never seen 
when you start to collect something, does it take on the same role that Fender's taken on for you? Like, do you dive as deeply into its history? I do because, you know, what my wife will say is like, we'll see something in a vintage shop and then she'll say she likes it. And then the house is full of it, you know, very quickly. <laughs> um, because I like it too. We have the, the you know, the, the same aesthetic. Uh, and, and she's got the same curiosity as me, but I then like to take it a, a little bit further. And part of that is to protect yourself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, some of these mid-century antiques, it's, you know, there's not necessarily faked. Um, but you want to make sure that what you're looking at is, is, is the real deal and then understand, you know, what is something in relation to something else and then sort of where it fits in too. And what I like to do, and I don't do it in the same way with some of our other collectibles, but with my Fender collection is I, I want it to tell a story and usually it's a, a story of evolution. Um, and, and I think, you know, the best collections in the world tell stories, yeah. right? Um, the best collections in the world are, are trying to bring some order to chaos. Like these things are floating everywhere and you want to bring them to one spot and be able to see them side by side. And that's also how I learn things new all the time. You know, talking to idiots online about stuff they don't know about, you don't learn anything. But to have the physical objects in front of you and to be able to commune with them and and see the evolution, that's the way in which you learn about things. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, 90% of the antiques we both collect, we don't bring them home unless they tell a great story or they have something tied to us that's personal. Because it doesn't matter what you collect, it's important. If you collect it, it has meaning to you. Mm -hmm. And I love, like, one of my favorite antiques that I've just started to kind of add to my own collection is, like, Victorian morning jewelry and things from the time of Victorian morning because it is, it's a deep, it's deep not in the sense of, like, this is deep, man. It's deep in the way that it was a societal rule across people of how somebody mourned and how much money you had depicted how you mourned a loved one and how far removed you were and it depicted what clothing you wore and I just find it fascinating to think back to that time when they took it so seriously for X amount of time and the pieces they carried, they didn't just buy because they looked great. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I love that. And I think for that, yeah, for that stuff too, it, it allows you to continue the pursuit. You know, if you find out one thing and that's it, you know, then what, yeah, right? So uh, that, that, that notion of deep, I think also um, beyond, uh, obviously, uh, that and the meaning of death for that is about how deep this, these things go and, and how how much of it can you figure out from from collecting. And even sometimes, you know, when you root around vintage shops, you can start to see pieces of other stories. That's what keeps you going to those places because uh, that and the uh, hopefully finding that odd treasure here and there too like that's important yeah well, it's like modern day like uh treasure hunting like you're looking Absolutely. for something that somebody hasn't valued appropriately to say that you you took home that piece and you collect an interesting bit of history you collect west german pottery yeah absolutely that was something where my wife had seen it in a vintage shop and i've actually got some of it sitting beside oh, cool. me the listeners at home can't see this but it's you know, beautiful that is gorgeous Right, it, it, it's a little bit of, of green and dark green, as it were, and it's a beautiful shape. And as we were finding these things, you know, they have mold numbers mm-hmm. and they say West Germany, and then they'll have markings too to see who you know the manufacturer was. If you're really lucky, they still have a sticker on it. So when we started to go down, you know, this rabbit hole, we then had to also make rules too because this stuff's <laughs> there. 
right? This stuff's everywhere, um, but it's mostly you know, because it's from the 60s and 70s. A lot of people didn't want a lot of color in their mm-hmm. home scenes because there's lots of brown ones, right? And those brown ones aren't the interesting ones. It's the ones, uh, the greens. And someone did publish a book on it. My wife found that, found it mm-hmm. secondhand, and we were, we were able to, we don't buy the brown ones. And now we don't buy them because they're overpriced. So when we were finding yeah. like that one, I was I was showing you, you know, it's 20 bucks, 15 bucks. Sometimes you'd find five bucks. That's fun. Five bucks is my price. Yeah. If it's five exactly. bucks, I'll buy it. Right. Yeah. No, but when no. it starts to be 50, 60, 100, 200, and the big ones can be 300. It's like, well, not interested. That's not fun anymore. Right. No, no. not at all. And yeah, they're for the time that they were created because they were made post-war. And it was when Germany was trying to get back on its feet and reintroduce artisans back into the workforce. And the fact that they went so bold with it after that time to just be like, fuck it, here's what we're making. You're either going to like it or you're not. And then it leads beautifully into the rest of mid-century that started to... Because mid-century is a lot of you know organic textures and woods and the strong lines and shapes, the colors really came in nicely in a kind of minimalist home. I think. Well, absolutely. And, and, and even a lot of those mid-century colors are pretty muted tones as well. So you, you, you see where those browns sort of fit into that, you know, but if you were cool, you want to have that pop color. Right? Yeah. Oh yeah, for um, sure. And, and a lot of the stuff in the early days was literally sold at Pottery Barn. When Pottery Barn sold pottery, <laughs> that's where some of this really cool mid-century pots, that's where they came from. Uh, from uh, as it would it's like how uh like mtv changed from not music videos pottery barn changed yeah. from not just pottery yeah <laughs> exactly exactly we didn't really learn that until we found this shop um uh in new york and the place was you know floor to ceiling with this stuff um and it's the most we'd ever seen in one place ever before and, and prices we bought uh, or paid for some of the ones we had were a fraction of what they were then trying to sell them for in New York. And I said to, to my wife, Maria, well, let's, let's pack up a trailer and bring all of our shit down here. We're selling it. Yeah. That's, what, that's what you can get for I it. I know. Gosh, we don't I'm need kidding. this anymore. We don't. Honey, we got bills to pay. And that pottery is going to pay a shit ton of bills and maybe buy some better antiques. Well, and you collect, it doesn't just stop there for you. You kind of bounce around this, the like late 50s, 60s, 70s with your collection. And um, one of our guests that we had on our first guest was she loves postmodern, but she also has a great knowledge of mid century. So I looking at the stuff that you'd send me of like the Adrian Parasol stuff that you have, do you have a lot of Adrian Parasol pieces? What drew you to those? Uh, again, it was just seeing them somewhere and then trying to figure out what the hell they were. Right. Um, so I'm staring at a Parasol table that has a uh, glass top, and that was the first piece we found. And the way it was sitting in the shop, actually, it was upside down. And as I was looking, I was like, yeah, something's not right about this. And my wife, you know, agreed. Um, and then, you know, Google image searches help a lot with trying to figure out what stuff mm-hmm. are. So then when we sort of, we okay, it's, it's craft associates. And so then we started searching out craft associates stuff. Once we understood what it was, um, you know, we were then on, on the look for it. So we've got a massive couch, Pearsall couch that sits in, in our living room. We, you know, the kids sit on it all the time. It's not like precious or anything. Yeah. Uh, although I'm sure it's worth four times as much as we paid for it now. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Cause that's, I mean, uh, like we said, you know, earlier, mid-century is really booming 
Yeah, absolutely. Right we found some some dining room chairs that had beautiful forms, but the, you know they just needed to to be recovered. And when we get them recovered, I always say, when there's a label, take the label off. I want the label back on because oh. uh, it says Craft Associates and, mm-hmm. and all that. That's very smart. Um, yeah, some of the other stuff like the table's not labeled and has no marking otherwise. And this was this was not high end stuff. This was accessible. There was a factory, right? And you know this was in every every everyday people's homes. So we found a bunch of, well, we've never found it all in one place. You know, we've had to search sort of high and low. Uh, my wife and I, you know, before COVID, you know, we would often just jump in the car and like drive to Western New York from Toronto, you know, it's a couple hours away and like poke around in shops there. And you'd find things at a different price point than if you were, you know, in Manhattan or, you mm-hmm. know, in the middle of Toronto for some of these things. So that, that stuff is super, is super fun too. Well, and a lot of um, like big we've antiques. We've got lots of Eames stuff as well. Uh, sorry, our internet's looping back and forth um, because everybody's home because of the coronavirus. <laughs> yes. Um, because a lot of the, when you go down to antique shop in New York, you can find big pieces because people in New York don't have a way to get that shit home. Yeah. So coming and, into and it with something you can haul things out of is perfect. Yeah, exactly. Well, in New York, people know what it is too, right? People, you know. Uh, they're ahead of the curve most of the time anyway with regard to that stuff. But, you know, if you can go into to small little places, especially those antique malls where, you know, it's a hundred pickers with a little small stall, right? Those are the mm-hmm. best because they don't necessarily know, mm-hmm. you know, they might not be well, when it's well curated, you know, you're not going to get a good a good price, right? When it's a jumbled, right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. jumbled stuff, you know, it's okay. There's going to be a treasure here, right? And that's when, you know, you got to make sure you've got your glasses on. Right? When you get into your 40s like me, so you can actually stop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> stuff on the shelves, right? And you, so you were saying you have some Eames pieces. What Eames pieces do you have in your house? Uh, we have dining room set, Eames. Um, we've got the classic uh, Eames leather chairs. Of, uh, the best piece yeah. we have is um, this guy in, in Buffalo in this old abandoned warehouse, and he bought, he, he, he'd buy up all this stuff. And he had dozens and dozens and dozens of them in different states uh, of repair. And some had labels, some didn't have labels, but they were used. Like these were well-used chairs, you know, with 50 years of, uh, you know, not home use, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not industrial use, but, you know, people didn't care, you know, smacking against one another. And so it just was a beautiful piece when we actually pulled one one out of there. It didn't have the label, uh, unfortunately, but the thing in itself just... It's just beautiful. Yeah. And that's just like an old guitar too, a well-played old guitar that's got the right pain and all that and not, you know, screwed up, not fucked up, but something yeah. that just has the mojo. Yeah, we, we have that. Um, I imagine that your house looks like the Jetsons. Like when I picture the stuff that you've sent me <laughs> and like the stuff you must have, I'm like, this is the coolest fucking house. Like I'm sure every room just has a great feel because you have you have a great eye for great pieces, obviously. But is that accurate? Does your house look like the Jetsons? Like, do you guys fly around in tubes? Well, yeah, and- <laughs> not the, maybe not the Jetsons, but certainly my wife uh, has a, a wonderful eye. And most of this comes from her. Like, if it were up to me, it would, you know, there'd just be stuff stacked to the ceiling for the sake of having it. <laughs> and so she then actually knows what to do with it, right? And she's the one who puts all of these things together, um, where I, I mostly can find it right mm-hmm. uh and then when it gets too much then it gets relegated to, <laughs> to <laughs> a little storage spot in the basement yeah um, i have the, yeah we have that same room part here. of the uh, yeah right <laughs> but 
yeah, I guess it started 10 years ago. We, we decided that's how we were going to do the house yeah. um, mm-hmm. in that sort of mid-century aesthetic just before it kind of took off, right? Um, and so we were lucky to sort of get in on that, but also lucky that people started to manufacture essentially replica pieces or homage pieces oh, so yeah. that you could feel you didn't have to go and find everything um, vintage. So you could have sympathetic pieces that made sense that were relatively inexpensive uh, or, or the house would be a sort of mishmash yeah. um, in, in that regard. Which is that's how I got lucky with our, like I have a mid-century style sofa and entertainment center and chair and like the table we're using today is like a pick table. And that's how I was able to, I mean, I bought it when I was in my early twenties and that was, I was able to afford it because it was a reproduction and, you know, looking at stuff and trying to find things that I liked and I knew I was going to have a kid. I was like, I don't know about that. Like, I'm not going to (laughs) pay this much for a chair to have my child color on it or spill yeah, exactly. something. <laughs> or, and exactly. I just, I think that's just cool. And you guys have cool stuff. And the one thing that struck me is it was so off my radar that I didn't even think of it as a collectible, but this, you have to tell me about the circus posters. Oh yes. Why, okay. why Polish to begin with the Polish circus posters? I Googled them and I was so fucking excited. I was like, these are, they're so cool to look at because you don't they don't look like circus posters to begin with. That's right. So we were in South Carolina um, and we, we we went into an art shop or flicking through the posters. Usual like travel posters that you see everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Ubiquitous and beautiful, those sort of things. But we weren't into that. Yeah. And then there was a bear in a tuxedo standing on a ball. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck is this? What is this? And, and, you know, it was a lot of money, you know, uh, because it was in a, in a paw shop. Um, and, and we didn't go for it, but I, you know, figured out what it was mm-hmm. from Googling it. Um, and then we tried to figure out how we could do it relatively inexpensively and make sure, because they're not, they're not all created equal. If you do a little bit of Googling and you see those late 60s, early 70s Polish circus posters, um, there's, there's multiple artists that did them. And there's a few, with a, you know, that have that beautiful aesthetic. And if you haven't seen the bear and the tuxedo and the ball, you got to see that one because that one's the coolest. I'll Google it right after this. Definitely. And so what I was doing was then finding them uh, where they were unrestored. So, you know, those things, like most posters, they need a little bit of restoration. So I found them cheap, had them restored. And so then I wasn't paying, you know, someone else's restoration mm-hmm. fee, as it were. And then, you know, the, their uh, upcharge and, and their profit being in their paw shop. And so we did it that way. And we found a really nice art store. Um, he's a banker in Toronto who does it for fun and does it cheap and, but does beautiful, beautiful work takes a long time. And so though the, that's, that's where uh, we were able to do that differently than just, you know, sometimes you have to be patient, right? You've got to figure out a way to, uh, to do these things without breaking the bank. Oh yeah. And I think that's a great tip to do what you guys did was to find great pieces and pay somebody to restore it and get it to that boutique value without, you know, filling somebody else's pocketbook. That's one of our, when Jill and I go antiquing or we go thrifting is I, I get annoyed when I go to a shop that's charging full retail for something that maybe doesn't necessarily deserve it. And it makes me mad for the people that don't know that because it feels a little snaky to me to have, you know, like Pyrex is super hot right now and it's got this big resurgence. And when you go to like a local thrift store we have here at St. Vincent de Paul, they'll charge $20 for a mixing bowl. 
that isn't even in any type of quality to be sold that yeah. way. But it's there's somebody that'll come in and not know anything about it, and well, and and I think too, like part of what drives the uh, their business or people who just buy one thing. Real collectors aren't they're not they don't want you actually going in there with any level of knowledge, right? Right. Because um, it's hard hard for them to sell that stuff. And then if you go in places with some level of knowledge, stuff's probably not good enough for you. You've already got it, right? And mm-hmm. so it becomes harder and harder to be that knowledgeable collector. But that also is what keeps you going every week and to be able to go out and, you know, because like just maybe you're going to find something. Um, and then when you don't, you know, there'll be fresh finds the week after. There's going to be something. Yeah, it's a constant revolving door. And I think once you start collecting any type of item, it's like a drug because when you find like there's a piece that I found years ago and it's I talk about them I think every episode they're the two bundles of hair but they are in the newspaper of the day they were cut off from 1928 there was an article about them and you got the no they're wrapped in the like they cut them off in their kitchen and they wrapped them in the newspaper and then they put them in the bottom of a trunk and forgot about them and the trunk was sold in a lot and it's that that kind of thing where if if the hair had come out of that newspaper or vice versa, they would have just been thrown away. Yeah. But yeah. To, to have them together. So I'm constantly like looking for those types of things. Like when I go and I look through like old postcards or old photographs, or I'm looking for something that the family members were like, mom collected a lot of weird shit. Let's donate this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you find something that's really great. Do you have any like bucket list antiques or items that you are still on the hunt for? Uh, there's always guitars. Sure. Um, I kind of am getting into old Martin guitars, especially ones, you know, before the war era, uh, you know, these nearly a hundred year old guitars that were used for different purposes. They're, uh, again, primarily it was women who played guitar at the time, little small guitars played in the parlor. That stuff has a real romance as well, especially if it plays well. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that that stuff's interesting, but it could change next week. Like, you know, I'm a little bit uh, uh, scattered in, 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 in that regard. Whatever catches your eye. Yeah, that's right. But and then then I feel like I'm cheating on my Fender collection, and then I, <laughs> I come back to it. Yeah, I but get now that. it's hard to feed the 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 right. Now it's hard to feed that beast uh, because you know what I'm searching for. Sometimes it's I don't even know. Yeah, you know, there might be a K and F that would pop up. Uh, that I didn't know existed before because they, a lot of them were made, you know, almost not necessarily as one-offs, but you know, especially the early ones were one-offs. And uh, it, when Martin and I wrote that book, you know, Temple KNF was at the time, and and now my knowledge of it is, and my collection of it is five times as big as it was then. And that chapter needs to be rewritten. And right. if I write that chapter today, who knows what that'll look like in ten years' time? Which I think is a I. A testament to one to Fender's uh, longevity and the what they put into the business when it was in its golden age, and also a great compliment to you and um, Martin because you guys are still learning about it and still putting the information out there for people to learn about that aren't at your level of expertise on it. Yeah, and and I think that's why Instagram's fantastic. Um, you know, I can take pictures of stuff and just publish it. I don't even necessarily need to talk too much about it because most people won't understand that anyway. But at the very least, there's 
some documentation as it were out there and I can point people back at that mm -hmm. until we actually you know do a next version if, if we will we may not fretboard journals great for that too um, you know they've published a few things of mine and and really excited when I find stuff that, that Jason Verlindy the uh, the publisher is just as excited uh, about these things um, and the publishing world for books isn't what it used to be. Uh, and so, you know, we don't necessarily want to publish another book, uh, for that, for that reason. So we've got to figure out other ways of doing it. We certainly don't publish to make money because there's no money, there's no money yeah, in there's publishing. There's no money in publishing, yeah. No, we just do this for, we just do this for fun, right? And because it's a story that I think needs telling mm -hmm. and, you know, the information that gets passed around online is, is simply wrong. But I I no longer try to correct everybody on forums like that. That it's too expansive now. Martin and I used to fight with people on forums in the early <laughs> days of forums because there was only a few a few uh, out there. Now you know it's uh, you know there's millions of people spreading misinformation on any variety of topics. Yeah, and on I any think, given day. Yeah, I think it's incredible that you guys don't romanticize the story. I think that it deserves to be told that way. And a lot of people appreciate that. Like when I was researching your book and looking it up, I mean, it was referred to the Bible as the Bible of Fender guitars more than once when I was looking over it by multiple people. And I think that is a great accolade to have for a biographical and, historical book. And that, and that was our goal. There was other books that were published um, and we didn't want to rehash anything. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be the coolest coffee table book at the same time as, as the best collection of guitars in, in one book uh, and, and something that you could refer to. So Paul Kelly, who's, who's the, the designer and photographer, um, we made sure that the colors are correct. So if you wanted to see what a, you know, what a guitar actually, the real color was, you could take that and put it against your, your guitar because um, in the past, the other books weren't printed very well. It took us a long time to find a publisher, and we went with an art publisher. So the book in and of itself was beautiful and could be used uh, uh, as a resource. Um, and, you know, thank God for cheap printing in China, because had we done it 10 years before, it would be a $250 book instead of a $20, $25 book. And it's, it's, a, now. it's a beautiful book. I, um, I borrowed Eric's copy because uh, shipping is horrendous right now, so I couldn't order one. And I was flipping through it, and it's just so beautifully put together. And the imagery, like you said, is beautiful. What you guys wrote and put in that book was, is not doldrum and boring to read. It's exciting, and it's fun to look over. And as somebody who doesn't know anything about guitars, I found myself getting lost in the story of just Fender. And I have this new appreciation for it that I didn't think I'd ever have because I don't come from a musical background. And and that's the highest compliment we could have, you know, because we knew the guitar dudes would find it. But I also thought too, and so did Martin and Paul, that people who love design and people who, you know, love you know that aesthetic, you know, would want to have that too. Um, and we spent a lot of time because we wrote this, or at least the impetus was when you know we all lived in London. We drank a lot of beer to, to get to that point, <laughs> you know, and a lot of arguing around in pubs to to figure out, well, you know, what was that going to look at, look like rather, um, and you know, we tried to make it at the end of the day look like all those guitars were in the same place on the same day, mm -hmm. where in fact it's multiple different countries, multiple different years, 
um, and we became you know very adept at our mobile studio setup um, uh, and dragging that around the uh, 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 the U.S. and Europe. Yeah, because it is it's it's very well job well done, and even for it to be a ten year old book now and to hold up quality wise, I think that it's going to be you know a book that is a reference book for many 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 decades. I don't think it's going to be one of those that's just passed over. I think the other ones that you bypassed will be. But I see this being, you know, part of college courses of music history at some point. <laughs> really? Yes. Really? Okay. So we do this thing at the end of every episode. We do yes. it like an imaginary state, estate sale walkthrough. Okay. Yes. And it's only full of your favorite things. So it's the perfect estate sale to go to. So this one today, we are in Palm Springs. And we walk up to this beautiful house that has a pink front door and the white trim and the great overhang front porch. It's just dripping with style. And the items inside are just as beautiful as the approach of the house. The first room we walk into after the long hallway is the gentleman's bedroom. And set out on the dresser is the man's accessories. And they're laid out on velvet, displayed beautifully. There's a guy watching in the corner to make sure nobody steals anything. And on top of it, there's a vintage Rolex watch or... A Fender dealer watch, neither of which are uh, in your collection. Which one are you taking home, Terry? Well, I do have both in my collection, but... Um, <laughs> well, hypothetically, you don't. <laughs> now I, you I, don't. <laughs> it was hard to write this for you because it's like, what do you get the bad that has everything? Well, I, I would uh, take the Fender dealer watch because that's a much shittier watch, <laughs> but far more rare than a Rolex. Yeah, because they didn't, I mean... Rolex could be sourced anywhere, but that Fender um, dealer watch, um, I have one, it's the only one I've ever seen, and I got it from the daughter of a Fender dealer. Oh, wow. And it is a shitty watch. <laughs> a tiny <laughs> shitty watch. You sent me a picture of it. I'll put it up on the Instagram, because I was looking at it, and I was like, it looks like somebody saw a Timex watch and was like, let's put Fender on that. We're going to make it also... The top half of one of those calculator watches. Do you remember those? It kind of looks like yeah, that. It, it is square shaped, and and they 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 gave that watch, I believe, along with uh, matches with your name on it. Um, uh, you know, as as you as you did at the time. You know, something to smoke with, something mm-hmm. to, to tell the time with. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just so cool. Okay, so we've made it through the bedroom. We've got our finds. Next, we're going to the living room. And they collected, they have a great collection of mid-century decor and furniture, of course, if it's the house. You spot across the way an Isamu Noguchi coffee table or an Arosarian womb chair. Oh, the coffee table. A straight away. No yeah, yeah. hesitation. Yeah, the womb chair doesn't speak to me. And they're too big. They're, they're too big. So big. They're huge. Yeah. They're so big. But that is our, that Noguchi coffee table, the stuff he made. I is I would I would I, I that's what I would go with too. Yeah. And and the the Persol sure. coffee tables with the planters in them sort of look like that. They've mm-hmm. got the kidney shaped top. Mm-hmm. Um but that's the king of 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 coffee tables for sure. Yeah, they're the Of course it's in this Palm Spring house. Yeah. <laughs> they had the money for it. Okay, the last room we go into is the guest room, and they just kind of put the extra stuff in here. Um, they didn't have guests a lot, but hanging up above the door is an, an Eames hang-it-all, and then across the way is a teak mid-century mirror that's in the classic mid-century shape with a little bit of teak peeking out behind it. Which one are you taking? You take the Eames, because that's far more rare. You can find the teak mirror by many manufacturers, 
But if it's a genuine Eames design piece, mm-hmm. especially with, uh, an Eames hang it all that hasn't been reproduced. Exactly. With the, the different colored balls, right? Mm-hmm. You want that. I wish paint. Yeah. That's one of the antiques that got away from me because five or six years ago, I was down at my friend Carrie's house and we were, she worked at a mid-century modern and postmodern furniture dealer. And I was talking about, we just bought our house was built in the fifties and I wanted to make the basement true to the time period. And there was a, she said that you should get this and Eames hang it all. And so I looked them up and at the time they were so fucking cheap, but it was still at that time. I was like, I'm not paying that much for it. (laughs) And now I'm like, son of a bitch. I could have had one for so much cheaper than what I have now. So yeah, those are, that was a good choice. And it was, I mean, cause you, I mean, you have cool shit and you have a lot of it. So that was a challenging estate sale walkthrough to write. I like it though. <laughs> I like it. I'll I take it all. Yeah. I'll take the whole, I'll, I'll take the house and everything in it. Yeah. We have a, we have, there's a clause in the estate cell where like you can make a pass and then you can send your spouse in and they can pick up the other shit you had to turn over. Yeah. 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 You have there you to. go. <laughs> because that's how it works. <laughs> well, Terry, I want to thank you again so much for sitting yes, down with thank us today, you. taking time out of your evening to talk to us about your collections. If you guys get a chance, those listening at home, check Terry's Instagram out and look over his collection because it is, Beautiful and truly well put together, and you can tell that it's really loved. Yeah. And I can't wait to see more of what you post. You post different stuff all the time, and I love it. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Fantastic chat. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about things other than Fender. I know. We're going to have to have you back on for our mid-century episode. We want to do kind of a deep dive. So we'll have you on as, uh, we'll say, an expert in the (laughs) mid-century I'll bring my wife along too. Oh, yes, that would absolutely. be glorious. We'll have to sit down with you and your wife. Thanks, Terry. Thanks, guys. Bye. So it took me a couple days to like come down from one, the amount of information we had from him, and to also just sit back and be so thankful that he sat down to talk with us. Yeah. Like, he didn't have to. Not even. Not at all. Like, I knew he was very knowledgeable. I knew that going into it. But then listening to him, it was just like, okay, just keep talking. Right. And I spent, I mean, several weeks up leading up to this interview trying to learn as much about Fender guitars as I possibly could. Right. And then once we started interviewing it, it was like, we totally... You take the wheel, Terry. Jesus, take the wheel. Terry, take the wheel. Yeah. And he... I just... (laughs) why i couldn't talk the house i was like oh oh like like so many things i just i and well and the thing too is he quite literally will put the pictures up of some of the stuff from his collection that he says and i highly encourage you guys to go check out his instagram yeah because his collection of fender ephemera advertising guitars all of that stuff is so extensive i had the hardest time writing that estate sale walkthrough for him because he has every interesting bit of Fender. Yeah. And if he doesn't, he will. It seems like it is always falling into his lap because we're like, oh, this or that. And he's like, I already have it. Right. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, so. And I like that his style, I mean, he really centers around mid-century modern. Yeah. And that was the other interesting about him. He not only had so much in- uh, information on Fender, but all these other items. Everything. It's like... He must go through like an interview process with these new items as they come into his house to be like, are you cool enough? How much research can I do? Because we literally, we would bring something up to him and he would know what there was to know about it. Yeah. Like we didn't have to ask 
the question. He just like went with it. And, and it, it was yeah, it was really it was nice to be in company of somebody else that Googles as obsessively as I do. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because that's uh, I don't know. Is it a resume trait yet? Because I am just constantly Googling something. So it was really cool to be in the presence of somebody that does the same thing and has kind of has that innate curiosity. Yeah. And his knowledge of mid-century was and mid-century has like a little bit of a like there was some debate on the time frame of when it actually happened and how the name was made so mid-century occurs from like the 1930s to the 1960s and it had its biggest kind of resurgence after world war ii everybody's coming back into the states they're looking for clean simple modern design Mm-hmm. So everything has the really clean lines and organic textures and is pleasing to look at. And the term mid-century actually was coined by an author in 1984, Kara Greenberg, for her book, Mid-Century Modern Furniture of the 1950s. Up to that point, it was just referred to as like uh, modernism or um, just the mid-50s. Like they didn't have an actual time frame for it or... Um, I guess it's one of those things where they didn't realize it was going to be so popular. Which when you look at it too, when she called it mid-century, it like literally was in the middle of the century. Yeah. And they, that's why they referred to that. And you saw over the last decade, there's been a resurgence of mid-century modern. Oh, for sure. Because of movies and film. So you think of the show Mad Men. Yeah. Was a huge mid-century modern design throughout the entire series from the fashion to the things you're seeing in the Eames chairs. And I was a real introduction to it and has definitely contributed to the rise of the value of these items. Oh God, I wish I would have been into this like 10 years ago. Then I could have just had a house full and been like, I already have all this and then sell it and just make a new house from all that you're selling. Yeah. And the interesting thing is like during its heyday of mid-century modern, we're not going to go into this too deeply for you guys today because we have a guest coming up that really knows his stuff on it. And we can't wait to share that with you. So we just wanted to give you guys a little. We're just giving you a teaser. Of mid-century because it's pretty, <laughs> it's popular. But they, the interesting thing about mid-century at the time was there was a lot of designers, but there was a lot of designers that were, I don't know if you can say the name of a furniture, but it rhymes with Smashley. So it was like the lower, not lower level, but it was, but it was affordable, consumer friendly. Yeah. And it was something that everybody could get a little piece of. Yeah. And at the time, you know, you had all the designers and the ones like you had Eames and uh, Noguchi and Sarian and all of those things, but they weren't necessarily consumer friendly, but Adrian Parasol right. was he, super consumer friendly. He was super consumer friendly and it is no longer consumer friendly. No. But Adrian Parsall was born in 1925 and is considered to be one of the earliest influencers of early modern furniture design. A prolific yachtsman, Parcell served in the Navy from 1942 to 1950, after which he graduated from University of Illinois with a degree in architectural engineering. Two years later, he would leave the architectural field behind to found Kraft Associates, becoming one of the country's most prominent furniture designers during mid-century, or otherwise known as the Atomic Age. 
which is, yeah, that's another popular term for it. And you, most people know atomic as what it actually sounds like is the starburst and the, yeah, lines, like you, as soon Jetsons. as you say atomic age, everybody puts that image in their head. But he was well known for his daring yet affordable price designs. Parasol is credited for creating the low gondola sofas, which Google that, guys, because, oh, man. They're gorgeous. They're so pretty. Adrian Parasol chairs, sofas, coffee tables, and other designs all remain popular today. So back then it was affordable. Today, not so much. <laughs> Definitely not. And Terry has some really great pieces of Adrian Parasol in his home. And his collection, as well as some other really great mid-century stuff. And we talk about it in the Estate Sale Walkthrough. We talk about Palm Springs. Right. And Palm Springs is the mecca of mid-century. Everything in Palm Springs, where these homes were built, align with mid-century modern ideals and modernism and the architecture. I mean, it's top to bottom mid-century. And if you've never seen images of Palm Springs, please stop this episode and Google it. Yeah. And look it up right now. Because it's kind of, to me, I don't know, mid-century modern falls under that strong sense of Americana to when I think about the 50s, it is like pinups and mid-century and... Right, and the be- the cla- uh, classic beach movies yeah, where everybody's having a party on the beach. And, you know, we've kind of seen a running theme as we do these curio corners of... How much of an influence uh, the end of World War II had, not only on America, but the entire world, from, uh, I don't know, values to styling. Yeah, and you almost get the sense that they needed that change. For sure. Like, the war has ended. They have this renewed love for each other and man and country. and Yeah, and it was like, let's start something new and fresh. and Also have a shit ton of babies. Yeah. Shit ton of babies. Hashtag boomers. <laughs> Another cool thing of, and it was one of the things that I was so surprised to look at and now it's like, oh, I guess I'll buy that now. Yeah. Again, sorry guys. <laughs> was the Polish circus posters. I had never, I know, I don't even know that I had ever seen one of these images. I haven't until he mentioned it. And then when I Googled it, I was like, well, fuck. Now I've got <laughs> to find one. Now it's everywhere. This article that I'm going to read from today is from Circopedia.org, and it's by Elaine Mayer, and it's the Polish Cirque posters, and that's spelled C-Y-R-K. So the end of World War II marked the dawn of the new period in the development of Polish poster art, which became known as the Polish School of Posters. The recently installed communist regime began commissioning artists to design posters not only with social and political messages, but also and more prominently to promote the many aspects of the government-run cultural media, from concerts, exhibitions, film, jazz, opera, theater, etc., and the circus. Building sites throughout Poland were enclosed with wooden fences, where, which were quickly covered with posters. These fences served as billboards and event notices, as well as support for the art of the street. Circuses became both the most internationally recognized and acclaimed subject depicted by the Polish School of Posters. The first Cirque poster appears in 1962 when the ZPR, not even going to try and say that, or United Entertainment Enterprises, the state agency that oversaw the circus, commissioned its leading artists to develop a modern approach to the circus poster. The ZPR wanted a revision, a revised look for the circus poster, 
to parallel the circus's efforts to upgrade its image. These new circus, circus posters were not to be advertised, presenting concrete objects, people, or facts, but rather they were to be artistic renderings, reminding the public that an exciting and contemporary cir- circus was coming to town. They were usually based on a single theme, and their metaphors and allusions created a wonderful artistic expression that, in addition to being viewed, were to be read, pondered, and digested. Cirque posters became known for their mastery of certain specific qualities to the Polish school. Painterly gestures, linear design, lettering, clever metaphors, humor, as well as vibrant colors. And a lot of the ones that Terry has are so brightly colored and they really there's something that you would like put on a wall as the accent wall oh for sure and the fact that they're just so i'm back in that time again they're so brightly colored yeah especially for post-world war ii yeah in the 50s of and to be under i just the whole part of it that it's under communist rule it's being politically guided but when you look at these posters, to me, they don't seem necessarily super political. But now that I know that that was their intention. Yeah. And you can almost see the undertones in some of them. For sure. And but, there's a quite an extensive collection. And they range in prices. Yeah. So when Terry was talking about how he would, he tries to find the ones because he found the first one in that boutique. Mm-hmm. And he tries to find the ones that are a little bit damaged and then has them restored. And there was several generations of the artists of uh, Polish school posters. The first generation was post-World War II. And then the second generation was the 50s to the 60s. And then the third generation was the 60s through the 80s. So it continued for a very long time. And the freedom in the 70s, they witnessed a lessening of like the state supervision of the media, resulting in state-owned publishers exerting less and less influence over the poster content. But then the turmoil that happened in the 70s and 80s politically further removed the posters from governmental restraints. And then it just became like a dynamic and expressive and more artistic form after the fall of the political control in the country. And you can see that transition. Yeah, you can. You definitely can. And it's now that we know the background, it was like, it's like damn. Mm-hmm. And then when finally in 1989, with the fall of communism in Poland... And there was a free market economy. It brought the end of an era and the end of the importance of the state-supported circus and the end of the posters. Like it just kind of tied itself in this little bow. And I mean, it did its job. Right. And it's, you know, this is very on brand for Terry now that we've sat down and talked with him and yeah. his, I guess, his historical deep dives that he does. No wonder he's into these. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I didn't. Like I said, I didn't know any. I have never heard of them at all. And we'll post some of them today that we've seen um, just in our cursory Google searches. But they it's definitely something I'm going to keep my eyes out for. And it's such a niche thing that I, I mean, I can't imagine that there's a lot of people that know about this. So you could probably find some of these pieces for a reasonable price from a dealer who really... Unless that dealer is listening to us right now. <laughs> then don't list them, guys. Hold them for me. Thanks. Another cool thing of Europe that we discovered. Yeah. And it's stuff like this that I'm like, gosh, darn it. I don't need to know about this. So the other thing he collected quite a bit of was the Western German art pottery, which again, I didn't really, I mean, I, I take a drink every time we say again, we have something else. we need I to know collect. you guys are going to be drunk. <laughs> so Western German art pottery is essentially a term describing the time period of 1949 
1990 and became the early way to describe the pottery because the country of origin with numbers denoting the shape and size was often the only mark on the base. Well, and they, so West German pottery was also made after World War II when the country was trying to pick itself back up. Right. And the fact that on the bottom, they didn't, that's, it's so hard to find a real one because the tags were paper yeah, and, and they, stickers. They didn't see, I guess, the importance at the time of making a clear pottery marking because at the time it's the same as the Adrian Pearsall furniture. It was just to get artisans it was back just in the to flow. Get, yeah, it was just getting them back in making money. Um, even though the company's names are now better known and many items are attributed to specific markers, the more generic term West German pottery remains its common use. Fat lava is a popular term that strictly refers to a fairly su- small subcategory of glazes but is all too often improperly used as a synonym with West German pottery. Which, I guess, if I heard the term fat lava in German pottery, I'd been like, what? I want to use it as a drag name for myself. <laughs> like, I, can I be known as fat lava? Like, welcome to the stage, fat lava. I don't know, but I can totally see you with, like, bright red hair. Right. Brighten the hair up a little bit. Give me a sequin dress. Flowy. Red with flames. Yes. Guys, let's make it happen. <laughs> please. Please, somebody, make I this happen. be fat lava. <laughs> but alas, it's just a glaze. I know. So the work of the main producers in the style concentrated on single decorative items such as vases, jugs, and bowls rather than sets of tableware, which I thought was fascinating because you would think there'd be everything. But it it sounds like it was more like the serving pieces. like Yeah, or it was like vases and pitchers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a, a, I wonder what their reasoning for that was. Like, was it just... Purely because it was, like, easier to carry or sell. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. There were relatively large numbers of basic shapes in plain clay body, and they were heavily decorated, typically with a great variety of glaze effects in more than one color. Many used thick, contoured glazes. The body sometimes carried a molded pattern or incised decoration, as in the Vetter Bowl. But Glaze colors usually had the impression of being placed by flowing or brushing rather than precise painting. Figurative decorations is not very common and typically plant-based when it occurs. Well, Nate, so the Vetter Bowl is really interesting. So it is like kind of squat, like almost like a pasta bowl. And it has dots set into it like a relief. And then it's got this like yeah, they were, square. It was like very... Simple. Very simple. Very Which, geometric. Back, I, So you'd have to imagine back then they didn't really have a lot of tools to do these with. So they were just trying to get some made. And and I almost prefer those simple dot patterns. Right. And, well, and their color scheme really lends to the, the whole era of mid-century when things got brighter right. and stronger patterns. Because there was less of it in the home, so it all needed to make a statement. Right. And you're, again, you're trying to bring color. The war's ended, and you're trying to bring something back into, you know. And it, like, it has a taste for every collector. Yeah, that was the, (laughs) that's why I'm like, yeah, 
I don't need to know about this. Like there's some really abstract pieces that have a lot of different textures and glazes running over them. Like there's one that has, it looks like lava or like pumice and it's got a red glaze poured over it and the pock marks are like mm-hmm. gray and fiery. And then there's another one where it's a yellow uh, pitcher. So the top is yellow with that kind of broken up glaze pattern. So it's got a couple different colors and some drips. But then when you get to the body of the gray, it's just the gray clay with some scallops. Like it is, it covers everybody's taste, which I think was super smart for them to do. Well, and I looked on eBay too, and a lot of these pieces are still quite affordable. Um, And even Terry mentioned that sometimes they had to like step away from the pottery. Uh, Because I mean, just even looking right now on uh, like Google shopping, it ranges anywhere from there's $435 to $40 to $20 to $50 for a set of three. So this is bad. There's a beautiful vase for $22 on Etsy. I know. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it was, it's a really cool thing to, I would say like, this is one of those pieces that you could start a really nice collection with, with the Western yeah, pottery. Yeah, and you could almost, it's not where it's Pyrex where they all start to look the same. You can get something different, like, oh, I'm not feeling the blue t- today, but this orange is perfect. And the collection pictures that Terry sent us, he has two very different styled collections. Yeah. Which he has, because he has some of the red ones, which maybe it's, it runs in that fat lava. Mm-hmm. And then the other one that he has is so simple and modern, and it's just like gray and like a cream color glaze. And they work together. Like They're beautiful. They're so pretty. And when Terry sat down with us for this interview, he sat down with us from his, what I would call personal museum of his Fender yeah, for stuff, sure. everything behind him. Mm-hmm. And I found myself like during the interview, like kind of looking over his I shoulders. Know, I was like, am I looking at him? Because I'm looking at that guitar behind him. Yeah. But, and, uh, but yeah, the pictures he sent of his, his I, I just would be like, go into his house and be like, oh. Right. Oh, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. he had that style where it was like all different, but it all came together. And right now, you know, mid-century modern is just kind of used as a marketing term by furniture companies. Oh, yeah, for sure. To cover a vast area of subjects. So I would encourage everybody to go and Google mid-century modern, but stay outside of furniture store recommendations and look through... The designers, because our first guest that we had on the show, Carrie, Mm -hmm. worked in a store that they sold mid-century and postmodern, and Mm -hmm. then she worked in Frank Lloyd Wright houses. And that is that's such a a neat, interesting part of American history with the mid-century that I think that a few of you would enjoy that little bit of a rabbit hole. It is quite the rabbit hole. I get caught down it often. Yeah, way too much. Especially when we're like getting ready to interview somebody and we're doing our research beforehand about their <laughs> antiques. We're like, oh, shit. We're like, oh, how did you get started? Oh, this is how I'm getting started. <laughs> thank you. Thanks. Um, again, we want to thank you guys so much. So much. The response to the show has absolutely humbled both Jill and I. It has gone way, way above our expectations. Tenfold. But we just wanted to say thank you so much. Yes, um, thank you. We do really appreciate your reviews on iTunes. One, they just make us cry like happy idiots at work in our break rooms. 
And two, it lets other people who are strangers to the show know what you think about it and love it. Follow along with us on our social media where we post all of the pictures from what we talk about today in the episode at the Mothball Prophecies Original on Instagram, Mothball Mavens on Twitter, and Facebook at the Mothball Prophecies Original. I would say we spend 99% of our time on Instagram, though. Yeah. That's where we share more of our day-to-day stuff and what we're finding out in the wild. But if you guys want us to post more on Facebook and Twitter, let us know because we will do what you want. Basically. We're at your mercy. (laughs) Also, if you have a cool antique that has been passed down in your family, something you found that has a rich history, or something you just think is cool... We want to feature your guys' antiques in a couple of upcoming episodes. So please send us an email, curios at themothballprophecies.com, or send us a DM on Instagram at themothballprophecies.original, because we want to talk about your cool shit, too. Yes, because we know you hunted for that. We want to know the story. And we want to know. Tell us your stories, guys. And remember that I hope you find cool shit. And always look under the table. Bye. See ya.